Can I pray for you? Let's all pray for Ian. If you feel comfortable with it, I'd like to just reach out a hand. It's a symbol that we're all praying for Ian tonight as he comes to speak to us. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for Ian, our brother and our friend. We thank you for what he has to say to us this evening because we know it is inspired by your word and enlivened by your spirit. Now open our minds to what you want to say and our hearts to what you want to do in and through us. Amen. Thanks, Russ. Appreciate that very much. Um, PJ, can, can the, the lectern sort of magically appear? That'd be really good. That'd help me, because otherwise I'm completely stuck with a microphone in the book. But let me paint a picture. It was a beautiful summer's day. Really, really warm. And Ruth, my wife, and I had uh, gone up to the top of a mountain close by where we live, three and a half, thank you, PJ, three and a half thousand feet above sea level. And it was just one of those lovely afternoons. There was a, a light breeze. It was warm, and the scenery was fantastic. And then we caught sight of them. There was a group of about, I don't know, 15, 16 of them, men, women, and they were all huddled together at... at one side of the mountain just by this sheer drop from a cliff. And we noticed as they got their big heavy rucksacks and started to unload them, and we realized that what we were watching was a whole group of parasenders. And we were completely entranced by this. And one by one, we watched as they ran full pelt, having put all their harnesses and their wings, their canopies up, they ran full pelt to the edge of this cliff and just vanished. And then within a matter of a couple of seconds, having sort of fallen off the edge of the cliff, as it were, they suddenly picked up and they caught the thermal and they soared 25, 50 feet above our heads. They were Flying. Some of them were so excited as they did it, they were actually shouting. And that was when Ruth said to me, that's what I want for my birthday. <laughs> I said, what? A bright yellow lycra jumpsuit? No, you muppet, she said. I want to parasend. Actually, she didn't say muppet because she doesn't say things like that, but it sounded better. She said, I want for my birthday, I want you to get me the opportunity to do a tandem jump with a parasender. Well, I hate heights. And uh, anyway, she couldn't be talked out of it. Women, when they reach 25, they go through funny phases. Have you noticed that, guys? And um, anyway, we decided to do it. Well, I was so relieved. The day that she was due to take the flight, we had a phone call. And they said, we've actually been told the weather is not good. And uh, as a result, we, it would be too dangerous. I was so excited. I can't tell you how relieved I was. I put Graham Kendrick on the stereo full blast. I had a praise march around the kitchen. I was excited because I realised how nervous I'd become. Next week, same day, phone goes and they said, we have a window. They say things like that, don't they? We have a window of opportunity this afternoon between three o'clock and four o'clock. And if Ruth can be here, she can fly. I could not bring it. I could not find the courage to actually go and watch her jump off the edge of a cliff. 
I remember we once lived in a part of London and the local driving school had an advert and it said, if your wife wants to drive, don't stand in her way. Which I thought was quite a good, <laughs> quite a catchy slogan really, isn't it? And so I, I, I decided the same thing applied if your wife wants to chuck herself off a cliff. You know, don't watch. So what I decided to do is to go down into the valley, the landing area, and be there praying and waiting for her. I wish I could show you the video that I took because two things you'll notice. One is I can't keep the video camera still. I'm so nervous. And the second is I'm squeaking like a teenage girl at various points, not least when she landed. When we were talking later on that evening... Because of my fear of heights, I just had, I had, you know when you don't like things, you've got to get people to talk about them, haven't you? I just said to her, what happened? And she went through it bit by bit. The worst bit, she said, was when she got there and she was introduced to her instructor, a lovely French guy, and he said, appalling French accent coming up, have you ever done this before? To which she said, no. He said, no, I'd never have I. <laughs> but <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> the bit that I still can't get over was when she said, once you're harnessed in and you're, you're there, the two of you, the simple instruction is, run. Just run. And don't stop running. And when you get to the end when there's no land, just keep running. <laughs> and everything happens from there. Today... We've been thinking about hope on a hill. And in your radio stations, you've been looking at some fantastic material about where hope comes from. Now, the answer is, we know God is the source of our hope, but this great Easter event, Jesus, by his death and his powerful resurrection from the dead, has actually made the kingdom of God break into the here and now. And that relationship with God has been made possible because of his death and because he has defeated sin, the power of death, and the powers of darkness. And tonight in our celebration, we're thinking about trusting hope and it's all to do with Jesus and resurrection. It's all to do with him being the one who can make the difference in our lives because he is resurrection and life. John, in his gospel, chooses to be quite selective in putting together the material about Jesus. So, for example, from the many miracles he could have written about, and he freely says, there are so many I could write about, you know, the whole world couldn't contain all the books that, that would be written. But he said, I've just chosen seven. And the healing, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is sign number seven in John's gospel. And in our material today, we've been looking closely at the study guide about the meaning of the cross and the meaning of the resurrection and what implication that has for us. And what we have here is Jesus giving applied theology. Because not only does he say in his declaration to Martha, and now 2,000 years later as we read that declaration, I am resurrection and life. He adds, now watch this. And the one who is resurrection and life gives life to a dead body. And Lazarus knows the touch 
of resurrection. Of course, Lazarus died again, so he's looking forward to a second resurrection, isn't he? We were looking today at how we're looking forward to the resurrection. Well, Lazarus is going to get it twice over. Let me spend a few minutes talking to you about the reading. We had that uh, from the Liberator uh, enacted to us by... uh, Lacey Theatre Company. I'm looking at John 11. That's the passage where that reading comes from. And John paints a very tragic picture for us of a family in need. Martha and Mary and Lazarus lived in a home in a, a little village called Bethany, a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. And we know that Jesus had a really special friendship with these three. He often used to use their home as a sort of getaway from the crowds. It was a place where he knew he was with friends that loved him. They looked after him. He could eat food. He could get his clothes washed. It was just that kind of haven. And then tragedy struck. And Lazarus was taken badly sick. And so immediately they send the messengers off to Jesus. He was quite a way away. People argue about how far, but certainly it would have taken about a day for people to have reached him where he was. And the message comes, Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Your friends need you. In John's gospel, in verse 3 of chapter 11, it says, Lord, the one you love is ill. That's actually quite a... An unusual way of saying it, isn't it? Not just a message, Lazarus is sick, but Jesus, Lazarus, the one that you really love, your friend, is very, very ill. And then a couple of verses later, John adds this. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So so he's going out of his way to say to us, this wasn't just anybody who was asking for help. These were people that Jesus cared about and was intimately involved with and wanted the best for them. Which makes it all the more astonishing that straight after that verse, it says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed there two more days. Don't you find that odd? It's like the bit in the story where you expect to read, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he said, let's stop what we're doing. How ill is he? How can we get there? Or even, we've, we've seen already Jesus. We think of that man who just came and said that his servant was ill and you said, go home, he's okay. And you actually healed him at a distance. You didn't even have to go. So Jesus, say a prayer. Talk to your, to your father. But Jesus said, we're gonna wait. And for two days, he waits. There's a misunderstanding because he says to the disciples, our friend Lazarus is asleep. And the disciples thought that he meant the fever that he'd got. Somehow or another, he was sleeping it off and, oh, that's good, he'll get better. But Jesus was using the word sleep in relation to death. But you see, he wanted to do something bigger. He wanted to do something greater not only to help Lazarus and his family, but he wanted to do something greater in order that you and I might understand that resurrection and life is not just some theoretical statement, but that is who he is. Do you find it hard when things don't work out the way that you expect? Do you find it difficult when you've gone through a time of 
praying and you've prayed and friends have prayed with you. You've given it everything that you've got and yet God doesn't seem to answer or to be more accurate, he doesn't answer in the way that we expect. I wrote a little book on prayer uh, about a year ago and I wrote to a number of friends and said, "If, if there was one thing that you'd pass on to someone else about prayer, what would it be? I was fascinated by some of the responses that my friends gave me. But one of them, a deeply moving one, because I, I know this guy and the heart that he has, was he just wrote a very simple answer. I've learned that no is an answer to prayer. I've learned that no is an answer to prayer. But it's hard, isn't it? And so when Jesus eventually arrives, what happens? Martha hears he's coming and she goes out to meet him. Mary can't do that. She, she just stays at home. The professional mourners have turned up. And Martha comes out and she, she, Martha's one of those people who, you've got them in your circle of friends, you've got them in your church, you may even be one of these people. They call a spade a spade. Yeah? If you're sitting next to someone like that, give them a nudge in the ribs right now. You know, don't beat about the bush. Just tell it as it is. Say it right out. Others of us have got people in our church and our circle of friends who call a spade an agricultural implement specifically designed for the purpose of removing soil from one place and depositing it in another. Give them a nudge if they're sitting next to you at the moment. Martha wasn't like that. She, she just got to the issue and straight out she says, Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So, so what's, it, what's it about? What's this all about? Jesus, I know who you are. I believe you, but why haven't you answered? To which Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha comes out with a great answer. She could have been sitting in one of our radio stations, couldn't she? I know he will rise again at the last day. Should I understand that? And then Jesus comes out with this astonishing statement. I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, she said. Yes, Lord, I Believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. I've read that countless times at funeral services, at thanksgiving services, at memorial services, because it is a great statement of hope that Jesus is resurrection and life. But I want to encourage you about something. You see, what gave rise to that great self-declaration of Jesus and paved the way for this astonishing miracle was Martha's honest doubting and questioning. And some of us just need to be able to be honest about these things. Andy, as he was leading us helpfully in worship, talked about speaking out the frustration, speaking out our concerns, speaking out the questions. Some of us cover it up with religious language and spirituality. No, everything's fine, everything's fine. When we just need to be real. And Martha, in being real, opens the way for revelation. Not only for her, but for us. What about Mary, the other sister? Well, Mary 
doesn't even come to meet Jesus. Now, strangely, John sets the scene for us by saying that Mary had this special relationship with Jesus. She was the one who poured perfume, verse 2, it says, on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So <laughs> she, wasn't, she wasn't afraid of Jesus. She wasn't ashamed of emotion. But at that point, she, she just stayed home. I met someone today who was really honest and uh, not just to me, but in front of a group of people said, you know, I didn't want to come to Spring Harvest. I didn't want to be here, but I booked and I had to come. I don't even want to be in this seminar now. Thank you very much. But you know, he said, that's really where I am because of stuff that's happening and where I am and what I'm feeling. But he said, as I walked through the Skyline Pavilion, someone on the stand stopped me. How are you doing? Just brief little conversation. How's your day? And he thought, I could give him the Christian answer or the real answer. So I gave him the real answer. And I said, I'm not, I'm not in a good place. And he said, this guy just put his hand on my shoulder and said, you're here for a reason this week. God's got things he wants to say to you and, and do in your life. So don't miss it. And this guy in front of everybody in the seminar said, you know, something happened at that moment. And I had this picture in my mind of, of Mary <laughs> not, not wanting to come close. Even some people watching this on the chalet TV because you don't want to be in the big top. The last thing you want to be next to is some happy, clappy Christian. Because life is not happy or clappy. In fact, it's something else that rhymes with clappy. <laughs> and where you are at the moment is saying, I can't, I can't handle that. Now, the wonderful thing is Jesus knows that. Jesus understands that. And you don't get extra brownie points for being in the big top or not being in the big top. But the wonderful thing is that Jesus comes to this family as they are in their reality and in their grief. In the text that John writes, he says three times over that Jesus was deeply, deeply troubled. If you look in the text, you'll notice it says, deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then a couple of sentences later, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And then a third reference, once more, Jesus deeply moved. And that's puzzled people. It's puzzled people because they're thinking, why is Jesus so upset? And the word that John actually uses for being deeply troubled in spirit is a very unusual word. It's used in the Greek language in reference to horses snorting. You know when horses are about to, to gallop or they finish galloping, there's that sort of flaring of the nostrils. It's a deep-seated emotion. It's more than just saying, oh my, my. It's something that deep down comes from within the pit of a person's stomach. It's something that rises up within them. And people are puzzled and say, but Jesus is about to turn all this around. He, he's resurrection and life. He's about to stand at Lazarus' gravestone. They're going to move the gravestone away. He's going to call out Lazarus' name. He's going to come out. There's going to be celebration. There's going to be party. There's going to be tears. There's going to be joy. So how come, Jesus, you're so deeply affected inside? I think the most satisfying answer, conclusion that I can reach is at that moment, Jesus was entering into the pain and the suffering that you and I experience when we bury a loved one. When Jesus wept, 
His tears were for that mother whose breasts have dried up and who cradles a dying baby in her arms and watches as it draws its last breath. Jesus wept for inhumanity and injustice. Jesus wept because of war. Jesus wept because of tsunamis. Jesus wept because of rape. Jesus wept because of child abuse. Jesus wept. At that point, he is entering into the very depth of human suffering and pain. Friends, that is a very deep, profound point this evening. Because for some of us who feel God doesn't care, for some of us who stand at a distance because of things that have happened in our lives in the last few weeks or the last few years, we need to hear that Jesus wept and Jesus weeps. That's our great God. Jesus gives the order. And he asks for the stone to be taken away. And he calls out the name of Lazarus. You know why he called out the name of Lazarus, don't you? <laughs> because if he didn't, it'd have raised everybody in the graveyard. <laughs> That's right. You see, this is resurrection and life speaking. This is the one of whom the scripture says death couldn't hold him. Death couldn't hold Jesus. Why? Because when he went down into death, it suddenly realized here was a force to be reckoned with, a force that they'd never seen before. And Peter, when he preaches his great Pentecostal sermon on the day of Pentecost, uses a phrase of a woman in labor when she gets to the point of no return. This baby is coming. And death suddenly finds it cannot hold the author of life. The one who is resurrection and life stands and says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes and they unwrap the grave clothes and the party, the celebration begins. Jesus, mighty conqueror, Lord, resurrection and life. But what's the significance? We've talked about the sign and tried to paint in a bit of the picture there. But what, what does it mean for us? What's the so what in all of this? Last night we asked how many of you were at Spring Harvest for the first time and it was quite obvious that a lot of us have been here for a long time, many times. Is there anybody in the Big Top who's been to 30 years of Spring Harvest without a break? No, you've probably gone to be with the Lord. Yes, okay. Well, I, I, I want to say that in the 30 years that we've been going, I've done 28 years. Steve, how many have you done? About the same, about 28 years. When we came to our first spring harvest, Steve was two and I was six. We were, <laughs> we were child prodigies, weren't we? We were quite astonishing, but uh, it's a long, long time ago. But sometimes when we're away planning and it's late at night, Russ, someone like young Russ, will be talking to Steve and I, and Steve and I will reminisce and we'll say, do you remember in 84 when we lost the big top? And do you remember in 87 when Jeff Lucas lost his Bible? And we'll be able to say, now, do you remember in 2008 when Steve Chalk lost his underwear? We, you know, we, we like to build a bit of history. And sometimes late at night, we'll be chatting together and Russ will say, oh, my chalet's a bit cold. And Steve will say, chalet a bit cold? 
When Coffee and I started out, we shared a cardboard box in Prestatin at the edge of the car park. <laughs> or Russ will say, I've got a very busy programme. And I'll say to him, busy programme? We were up at four in the morning cleaning the shoes of Clive Calver and Peter Meadows. <laughs> then leading a prayer meeting. You don't know the meaning of work. And occasionally he'll say, I don't like the food this year. And Steve will say, food? Do you know when we started out, we fed the children's team on day one, the youth team on day two, and if there's anything left, the adult speakers on day three. Nostalgia's not what it used to be. <laughs> Friends, for those of us who are familiar, familiar as Christians, familiar as disciples, familiar as spring harvest attenders, there's a real risk that we could miss what God's got. You see, the same Jesus who raised Lazarus to life is the Jesus who wants to bring hope to you and me in our lives today. This isn't about what happened five years ago or two years ago or last year. This is about now and what Jesus wants to do in your life and in my life today. And whether you're watching on Chalet TV or whether you're here in the big top, Jesus wants to speak to us and is speaking to us this evening about embracing his resurrection life about acknowledging there are times when we have deep questions, we're frustrated that our prayers aren't answered in the way that we expect and in the time we expect. He wants us to come with our questions and our frustration and our doubt and our anger. He wants us to find in him peace and healing and hope. I was reading recently about a young doctor, a GP, and uh, he'd only been qualified for about a year. And one of the senior partners in the practice suddenly noticed this elderly woman rushing out of this younger doctor's consulting room and out into the car park sobbing. And so the, the, the older doctor goes out and finds her and calms her down. And he comes storming back into this young doctor's office. And he said, what on earth are you doing? Mrs. Williams is 87 years of age. She's been a member of this, this surgery for years. And he said, we, we've helped her with the birth of her children, her grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and you've just gone and told her she's pregnant. <laughs> and the young doctor looks up and said, yeah, but has she still got hiccups? Sometimes a shock can help. <laughs> a shock can help. And coming out of this passage this evening, this story of resurrection life touching a family, we learn that we needn't be afraid of death. Now, some of us may be afraid of the manner of our dying, but what we've been looking at in the material today is we needn't be afraid of death. Somebody wrote a book with a wonderful title, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Because that's what the material today has been teaching us. Jesus is resurrection and life. We needn't be afraid of death. But we also learn that we shouldn't be confused by delay. When we come and say, God, I want you to do this and I want you to do it now, and he chooses in his power not to do it now, 
We shouldn't be confused by that. We shouldn't feel that somehow Jesus doesn't care, Jesus doesn't love us. It's a sign that he's just forgotten us and abandoned us and he does things for other people, he doesn't do it for me. I know it's a mystery, I can't explain it. I'm thrilled when I hear of stories of miracle and healing and great things happen and my heart is broken when I hear of those that God hasn't chosen to intervene in that way. I walked across the site just earlier today and thinking about this evening, thought about our friend Rob, Rob Lacey. I thought about our friend Rob Frost, who was here this time last year. It's a mystery, isn't it? We can't understand it. But when Jesus chooses not to answer prayer in the way that we expect, that is a cause for us to reach out. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Some, some of us I know tonight couldn't sing that line. That was the bit where we, we had to stop singing because we find it hard when the darkness closes in, Lord, to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. But then we needn't be ruled by doubt. I was asked some time ago about doubt. And the answer that I gave is that I think all of us live with doubts. I I live with doubts a lot of the time. But the choice that we have is not to be ruled by doubt. Not to be ruled by it. But to choose, when we've got questions that we don't know answers to, to honestly bring that to God. And say, Lord, I don't understand this. And it it does hurt me. And I am confused. And I do feel angry. Rather than to try and deny it in some way. I was walking, as I said earlier today, thinking about the two Robs, and I was reminded of um, Roy Castle. Roy came to Spring Harvest about two or three times, and uh, one, I did a late evening uh, interview with him, and we had a meal together, I think, before or after. And one of the questions I asked him personally was, his wife Fiona, as you know, is, is very well known as a Christian, but she was really quite upfront about her faith, and Roy was much, much more reserved about his faith. And then suddenly he sort of came out as a Christian and I said, what, what, was, that, what was behind that? And he said, well, the truth is I, I became a Christian after Fiona, but he said, I just had so many questions and I had so many doubts and I kept thinking I'm going to say something and I'll put my foot in it and oh, I'll, I'll mess up the whole thing and the papers will pick it up. And I just felt so afraid. Then he said, one day my pastor, Jim Graham, just put his hand on my shoulder and said, Roy, Jesus is big enough. He can cope with it. And he said, I felt released, just released at that moment. I could just be the simple follower of Jesus that I've become with my doubts, with my questions, not knowing all the answers. Jesus can cope with it. And some of us need to hear that this evening. Jesus can cope with it. But you know this passage, (laughs) yes, it's about us and it's about pain and it's about confusion But let me be absolutely faithful to this picture of Jesus. It's about him. He is the Lord. He is resurrection and life. A little bit later this week, we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation. There's some special seminars that run through the week about Revelation, how to understand it. There's a marvelous picture given at the beginning of Revelation of Jesus appearing to John, the same John who wrote this gospel, And in that fantastic revelation of Jesus in his glory, his majesty, and his splendor, John records these words where Jesus says 
Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. What a glorious picture that is of our risen Jesus. He is Lord. And he is the one who speaks to you and to me this evening in our confusion, in our fear, and in our disappointment. And when in a few moments we have the opportunity to receive prayer, some of us looking to God for healing, and God in his mercy and grace will answer that prayer for some of us this evening, because that's the sort of God he is. But for some of us for whom the touch from God will be a touch of strength that we might carry through that trial, we've got to allow that room for Jesus to do what he wants to do in our lives. But we come to one who loves us, who cares for us, who weeps over those things that we break our hearts over and says, I am resurrection and life. I told you the story about Ruth Parasending because in all my preparation for Spring Harvest, I could not get that image out of my mind. Every time I sat down to pray, to prepare, to plan and to think, I just kept seeing the image of Ruth running down to the edge of that cliff face, running and keep on running. And friends, that's a picture for some of us tonight here in the Big Top, watching on the Chalet TV, that we're to run, to run to Christ, to run to Jesus, the resurrected one, the one who is resurrection and life, to run in faith, to run in hope, and by God's grace, to keep running. Amen.